0: Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that living in community is the richest, most effective, and healthiest way for we human beings to live we are basically tribal animals. We enjoy being together. We enjoy doing all kinds of things together, from sewing circles to poker games to watching football games to going to theater together. One thing we love doing together is eating. We love getting together in either small or even large circles and eating together. Human beings are basically cooperative, collaborative animals. However, we must always remain aware that there are a small percentage of us who are very different, extremely different. These people are predators and dominators. These are people who, rather than have us be citizens, would have us be subjects. You can go back in history and see them in the, in the, going back to ancient Egypt where 1%, the pharaohs, ruled 99% of the population. You can move forward in history, whether you want to go to Genghis Khan, whether you want to go to uh, Caesar, who ended the experiment with republic in ancient Rome and turned it into an empire. Going forward, jumping a lot forward, there's Napoleon. Uh, there's Mussolini, there's Hitler. Nowadays, there's Bolsonaro and Trump. These are all people who would prefer to be dictatorial, to be tyrants. That's what they're comfortable with. They believe that the strongest, most powerful should rule the rest of us. But that's not the way the rest of us feel. When we overthrew King George and when we overthrew Domination by the church. Remember the kings ruled in cooperation with the church by what was called divine right. Divine right of kings. They were placed there by God. So when we had our revolution, we went against not only the king, but we went against the church. But what we did accomplish was we became citizens in an experiment that we're still experimenting with called a democracy and a republic. A democracy, one person, one vote, a republic, we're all equal before the law. But we don't have that forever, folks. That's something we must maintain, we must be aware of, and we must get out and vote in order to make sure that we keep our democracy and our republic. In the words of one of my great heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind Body Health and Politics, it's my privilege to have with us Sean Lawler. I think Sean's coming to us from Fort Collins, Colorado. Is that right, Sean?
1: Yeah, that's right, Richard. Uh-huh. Welcome to Mind yep. Body Health and Politics, Sean. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. It's really really nice to be talking to
0: you. So, tell us, what's on your radar screen nowadays, Sean? What's filling up your consciousness?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a big question. Well, I think I would start with, you know, as you were talking just there and giving that very interesting introduction about the power of the kind of power hungry tyrannical folks um, talking about King George and the divine right of the king made me think of the mentality of the colonists for and in relation to the expansionism and treatment of some of the indigenous well the indigenous people of north america and through the idea of manifest destiny and it was just kind of interesting to think of it as a continuation in some respects of that directed toward others and and that's just been really heavy on my mind lately just learning about more about the history of the treatment of the indigenous people of North America particularly at this point which essentially sprung from being really involved in the psychedelic world and um you know having these conversations pop up a lot and i'm working i'm working on finishing my book my first book it's going through the copy edit and yeah just i just writing about peyote in particular and um kind of the conflicts surrounding it in the psychedelic world now yes kind of propelled me to learn more
0: your book is called psychedelic revival as i recall that's right yeah yes Mm -hmm. and so what you're noticing as you do your research is the connection between psychedelics and colonialism on, on how we treated people and we treated them in relation to their use
1: of certain substances. Is that right? Yeah, that's definitely, that was kind of the, the entry point was learning about the treatment of people and their use of peyote in particular. Yes,
0: Well, I share that with you, Sean, because through my research and use of psychedelics over the years, the three great stains on the American character have really presented themselves to me very strongly, how how we've treated the indigenous people, how we've treated people of color, and how we've treated women. Those to me are the three great stains on our character. And mm-hmm. uh, and and the the eradication of the indi- almost eradication, I should say, they're not completely eradicated, but we more than decimated the uh, the American Indians, haven't we?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I just, have you read um, "Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee"? Yeah, a long time ago, yes. Yeah, I'm experiencing that for the first time, and just some of the details of what you're talking about are pretty uh, heavily affecting. Yeah,
0: I'm I'm yeah. I'm much more familiar with what we did here in California, where we rounded up ten different tribes and marched them all to one place in Northern California called Covalo, and we basically told these tribes to uh, live together. And that was about 100 years ago. And they're still living together. But it would be like taking distant strangers uh, from 10 different states in the Union and just marching them somewhere and saying, now all live together, whether you like it or not. It was a a heinous thing to do. I gather, though, that some of this this, um, education is coming to you through your study of psychedelics and tell us absolutely yeah how did you begin what 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 brought you into studying and being involved with
1: the psychedelic culture Sean yeah it probably roots back to my first personal experience which was when I was 21 I'm 35 now so it's been a bit and that was an experience of psilocybin mushrooms with some friends and it was just... Amazing, just an amazing day being outside while I was abroad in Australia and doing a. Uh, there's just a connection between travel and kind of opening my eyes to see more of the moment and be more in the moment and uh, more authenticity, which means a lot to me. And that's right when I started writing as well. And so. Uh, I was, I just was fascinated with them. I was fascinated with psychedelic history. And, you know, as my life went here and there over the next decade, more or less, uh, I was always still interested in psychedelics, but just was not aware of all that was happening at that time more behind the scenes, but with the research and psychedelic assisted therapy and, you know, even just the, deep traditions of plant medicine use, it was kind of off my radar. And then I started to learn about it through podcasts, actually. And at the time, I was really looking to start energizing my writing career. And um, there was a local paper or sorry, a local little magazine in Boulder that was publishing some stories about psychedelics. And so I started pitching some. And uh, that led me to a clinic in Fort Collins that is a, a MAPS MDMA therapy research site. So interviewed the principal investigator there. And you know, I, I think my in my life it's it's been a lot about following what feels has a kind of aliveness to it, like what energizes me and what I feel excited about, uh, rather than maybe a strict plan of what I'm supposed to do or want to do. And so that happened with this world of research. And I was just, it's, it was just kind of like the rabbit hole kept going deeper. I kept learning more of research happening, results happening, and decided that I wanted to keep writing about it and also to become a psychedelic therapist. And so I uh, applied and enrolled in Naropa university's program, their uh, master's program in mindfulness-based transpersonal counseling. And uh, I've just kind of continued to learn more throughout that. And uh, I finished that, and I'm doing the work now, getting working as a ketamine-assisted therapist.
0: So your first experience, as I understand it, was with uh, psilocybin about 14 years ago. And what? Yeah, and what was your next uh, psychedelic experience after
1: that, Sean? It was uh, also psilocybin. It was a couple weeks later, and it was what was left of that. And it was at a uh, for a Simon and Garfunkel concert, which was kind of like the most amazing music. I I just, I just loved them, and uh, it was. Probably not that much more than a microdose looking back, but I didn't know at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know if I'd go as far as to call it a mystical experience, but it was certainly an emotional breakthrough experience. And, and then after that, it was um, LSD um, about three years later, Yeah, three or four years later. Tell us a little yeah. about that. I was, um, I spent a couple months hitchhiking. And so I was hitchhiking around in, um, California and I ended up kind of reconnecting with a person, I, a guy I knew in college and he was traveling in an RV with some friends. And so we ended up in Berkeley, California and everyone ba- basically ended up acquiring some and uh one of these these guys and i went to lake tahoe and hadn't i we both had experienced mushrooms several times but uh not lsd and we camped and each took two hits of what we had acquired and um it was Incredible. It was amazing. Like the evocation of the colors of the lake and the sky, like the the nature connectedness was truly profound and then we made a fire and played our guitars around the fire and it was just a flow state in that spontaneous creation of music that I've had never experienced before. And it was it was just just a remarkable, amazing experience that I'm super grateful for. Can you venture a guess as
0: to how many micrograms were in each of the two tabs that you took?
1: Yeah, I would I would venture a guess that it was probably about seventy five or so each. Each, yeah. So you took about one hundred and fifty. I would I'd estimate yeah. that 150 to 200 probably
0: enough to get colors changing and to feel in the flow, but not not quite enough to have ego dissolution. Correct, right? That's yeah, the, there was not not ego dissolution. No, that's the next stage up. You, yeah, you, you, need, <laughs> right. you need at least 250 or 300 for ego dissolution.
1: Yeah, you know, I have never had that experience on LSD, I have to say. Well, you you have that wonderful experience
0: ahead of you uh, some time. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's nice. It's uh it's, it's fascinating and almost uh indescribable. Uh, but it's a uh, it's I have found it a uh very beneficial. It's a tremendous confidence builder because hmm. the ego death feels like real death so it's an opportunity to deal with acceptance of death as part of the life cycle rather than be afraid of it as uh, as so many of us are trained to be in
1: our culture and was that difficult to reach that level of acceptance when you had that experience for the first time in a way there isn't much option you you either fight if if you take
0: enough of the medicine you get to that point of ego dissolution where you where you either fight it and have a real terrible time because the, the the medicine is so powerful or you just accept it and lay back and let it happen and f- since i knew in advance and had read about it and i think so many people do Nowadays I would hope that the guides prepare people for that so when it when you feel it coming on uh, you recognize that you're not really dying when I took it for the first time a very large dose it was in 1965 and I I knew something about ego death having read you know books about it but I was it still felt to me like I was really dying and I just uh, had to let go and of course i came out the other side and i'm still here but it it, it felt extremely real but again it was extreme also powerfully beneficial uh in terms of of that uh end of life transition which as you know people are now using psychedelics for end of life uh transitioning with anxiety and depression i want to come come to something that really was uh uh instrumental in arranging this interview, and that is that you've written a, an important article about the adverse effects of psychedelics. And we've been talking in the last few minutes about how we have both have benefited uh, from psychedelics. Uh, please tell us and go into some detail
1: about your article on adverse effects. Sure, yeah. Just a a quick bit of context, I guess, would be that, you know, I I was coming from these more very positive, beneficial experiences and entering this world of the psychedelic research, and there was a certain point, I guess, of learning more about it and starting to feel like I was hearing more about what sounds like kind of a shadow of this world, things that are not talked about or... Not acknowledged, and uh maybe some kind of thin narratives of what psychedelics do that felt kind of pol- ag- agenda driven politically motivated and there's there was some f- phenomenon that seemed to show up in people of um myself included of at at times of like a tendency to um, avoid certain things that could potentially make them look bad as individuals or a trend of an organization that could make that organization look bad. And just these examples of some pretty nasty harms being done in underground, typically underground uh, kind of capacities, but uh, also above ground. And so I learned about the concept of spiritual bypassing and that just really resonated with me this concept of using spiritual practice as a as a, a tool for avoidance like to meditate in order to kind of section off something that's painful rather than actually working with it and kind of integrating it and forming a new ego structure kind of that is good at doing that and bypassing and walling, walling things out. And so with psychedelics, there's such a mentality of like psychedelics make you make people a better, better people. Like in general, psychedelics make you more aware. Psychedelics are like, you know, reaching, uh, like an enlightenment suddenly, and then being back down at the bottom of the hill, like 10 years of meditation in one go. And, it just doesn't feel like the full picture to me, nor does it feel all inclusive, those kinds of mentalities. And I've seen and heard of people who have taken psychedelics and plant medicines to a kind of extreme and become highly destabilized and um, kind of lose touch with with any kind of could be considered consensus reality, like in a pretty broad use usage of that term, and who don't come out of it or who um is basically things that contrast those those narratives. And so yeah, I just wrote an article about let,
0: let me interrupt you for one moment, Sean. And of course, Richard. thank yeah. you.
1: Do you have more information?
0: About these specific cases, were you able to follow up on any of them, and have any specifics, like on what they took, how much they took, what happened to them, what happened to them afterwards, how long the negative effects lasted? Do you have anything on that, or was it more like uh, Tom Tom information, f- you know, coming through through the through the uh, Tom Tom system?
1: The Tom Tom system you know, where
0: we sort of tell things to people in a text or in an email, but we don't go into detail. You just say, hey, you know, I heard about a guy that took, you know, five grams of psilocybin and he, he hasn't come, you know, and, but and you sort of hear the story, but don't know much about it is what I'm.
1: Hearing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I mean, I certainly got some information about some some of these stories. Um One person that comes to mind and like i i just want to be kind of like sensitive with this one because like i knew uh i, I didn't know of this person well but i knew him and you know we were in the same kind of community and uh i, I don't know all the specifics about dosing and stuff all i know is he was very involved in uh kind of ayahuasca community and um doing intensive retreats with it and uh became highly destabilized and ended up I don't don't want to actually say that the details of like what happened, but he died due to kind of living in a perpetual hallucination that, but like I said, I don't know how many times in a row he drank it. I don't know this or that. let Let me, let me give you a little help here. You know, I'm a clinician.
0: So sometimes I want to talk about a patient on the air. So the way I do it is like if the patient is a male from California then I would tell you a story with all the similar details but it would be about a female from Tennessee and and if it was a guy in his early 20s it would be a female in her early 30s so in other words I disguise the person but I'm able to talk about the details of what they took and what happened to them I sort of okay. I use that as a way to preserve you know anonymity and confidentiality so i'm offering gotcha. i'm offering that to you as a tool as we go forward if you have other stories because i definitely yeah. respect the fact that you don't you don't want to create any uh, undue embarrassment for the family or for any people involved
1: yeah no i appreciate that and let me let me give you one more with actual more specifics is is yeah is that all right sure please is, i want as much yeah. as you have Okay. This, is, this um, is very important stuff, Sean, and,
0: and here's why. Let me give you a little context. I've been working on this, this psychedelic advancement for 50 years. Thanks. It's, been a, lo- Thank it's been a really long haul, and as you know, the substances have been illegal at the federal level for the entire 50 years. Now some cities and states are decriminalizing certain things, but we still have a long way to go. That said, we're in the middle right now of a huge renaissance, right? There's more research going on now than at any time in the last 50 years at the major universities. So I think it's very important while this renaissance is going on to let the public know of the adverse effects, to differentiate ourselves from big pharma who hide their negative effects from the public. And then the public suffer because they take things and and lousy things, terrible things happen to them and and they're they're shaking their heads like what's going on, like with the SSRIs, for example. So in our case, it turns out that the adverse effects are relatively rare, but they're still important. So this is where I'm coming from and wanting to know this and why I'm writing the book called Psychedelics Adverse Effects, so that the public knows what they're getting, what the chances are, even if they're very remote, of a particular thing happening. I think that's a very important story you just told, for example, because we do know that people are going to South America and they're taking massive amounts of ayahuasca in relatively short periods of time, right? People are going down there for two-month stays and in a two-month period, they're taking ayahuasca 16 times, And so there's going to be some fallout from that. And you're giving us one example. We don't know exactly what this man died of and to what extent it was related to the ayahuasca because he died later. But we do know that he, from your perspective and what you heard, he never really came back to his, his what you might call normal or regular consciousness again. He he got lost somewhere, right? Isn't that what you're telling us?
1: Yeah. And yeah, it was in the midst of one of these retreats when it, that yeah, he actually he died. died. Yeah. Well, not not on the like, you know, medicine itself, but like, you know, there's maybe a day off in between. But he, like, but he actually died at happening. the retreat center. This is what You've I heard. Heard from someone who is closer friends with him yeah. than me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So without you know revealing any more, let's go on. I interrupted you. Let's go on to
1: the next example that you have for us. Okay. Well, this was more above ground, I suppose, and less, less extreme and tragic, but still, I think, an important adverse effect. I know a person who went on, did a, a ketamine therapy training, like a, a therapist, you know, who did this and had not experienced ketamine before. And, um, you know, ketamine experientials are parts of a lot of the ketamine trainings. I'm a strong believer in that, that practitioners who offer ketamine-assisted therapy, it would be really ideal to have personal experience, unless there's a very strong reason not to. Mm-hmm. But this person there were two experiences of ketamine as part of this training one uh oral solution oral solution um and the other intramuscular injection and these were one day apart and i don't know exactly what this person's dose was but typically one to 300 milligrams for um, oral solution and Fifty to a hundred or so for intramuscular. So somewhere probably in one of those ranges. And um it I I think it seems she ha had a kind of spiritual emergence or kind of experience that followed this retreat or this uh this training, and um it continued for many months which was a kind of um, just question not just questioning everything like you know let me let me try to collect my thoughts on this i'm finding it hard to say things without giving too much you know to protect this person well we're talking about a man in alabama (laughs) right thanks for reminding me yeah we're talking about a man in alabama that Ketamine training in Alaska. That's right. Yeah, there was the the person's uh, this man in Alabama's spouse was very concerned, and you know, it just this this person, this man in Alabama, would end up in Tennessee or end up in Maine, like just kind of go on these long trips, and just kind of felt they were seeing into the true nature of reality and. That everything was a lie, pretty much. And like everything that it ever believed was a lie, but in a very destabilizing, unintegrated way. And, anyways, it continued for about six months. And at, at this point, this person has come back, I guess, and sees their experience as a kind of spiritual emergence slash psychotic. Break or something close to that that happened from just two ketamine experiences in a really good setting, a really good training setting. So that'd be another yes, adverse effect you. to be aware thank of. Thank
0: you for that. So we have one with ayahuasca and one with uh, and one with ketamine. And what what was the focus? Tell us more about the focus of
1: this important article that you published on adverse effects. Sure. I think it would, it would be what I perceive as a tendency in the psychedelic renaissance or uh, whatever one chooses to call it, to not talk about these kinds of things, to, to hardly mention them. And if someone does mention them, either at a conference or a webinar or in conversations... Um, a pattern of that person kind of getting shut down or uh, labeled as being negative, and yeah, you know, I think just kind of the more I talk to people in this space, seemed everyone had so many people had stories of these kinds of things were or or shady behaviors or or, or guru, like the guru kind of facilitator vibe like where people lead underground ceremonies and uh harm participants but are still kind of like beloved in the their community and i just think there has to be a lot of avoidance for that to happen to see blatant harms and have a reason to justify why you shouldn't talk about them or acknowledge them either in someone else or in in oneself yeah i I tend to uh i I studied philosophy when i was an undergrad so you know I, i if i'm speaking kind of vaguely and far out that's just kind of how my mind tends to work I studied philosophy also in college. Cool. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Ethics and aesthetics okay. were my main area. Um, aesthetics. Uh, I, I had a class on aesthetics, actually, in my when I took mushrooms for the first time. It was very impactful. So, in your
0: article where you're talking about how people are not talking about the adverse effects— and your the article was published i i certainly caught my attention did it catch the attention of others are you getting some uh you know some play from it people asking questions raising issues you know what's
1: kind of interesting is that article actually got published at psychedelics today uh about a year and a half to 2 years ago mm-hmm. and they It got some interest, I guess. Like people, people were set writing comments and stuff like that, but it didn't seem to like strike much. And then they republished it kind of like a couple, like a month ago or whatever when you and I got in touch. Right. And it was, it was, there was a lot more happening with that. Like more people reaching out to me, more comments on, the posts, it seemed. It, it was like it, I don't know, s- struck more in that moment than it did two years ago. What do you see as the
0: future for this? Do you think this is, we're going to start talking more and more about the adverse effects, or will there be bulletin boards or forums or some place where people can talk openly without necessarily revealing themselves?
1: i i do I do think we'll talk more about it because I think there's a much bigger push now to uh, talk about things that are outside maybe the mainstream news narrative about psychedelic therapy healing people
0: have 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 think, you heard so. uh, any stories about adverse effects from other psychedelic substances such as l s d or even though technically not a hallucinogen, any stories about MDMA?
1: I think the the only stories I've heard about um, LSD involved what sounded like a lot of use, like almost daily for like years, maybe. Really? Uh, for, for a particular individual that I, I, a very close person to me told me about, went to college with them. Um, Almost daily use, huh? Yes, almost daily use. Uh, he said he would like kind of, he'd have like a a 10 strip and just kind of take bites off of it like through the day. Wow. I'd love to interview that person. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That, that would be very interesting. But, um, my, my, the person who told me about this, a uh, person who he was friends with said he started to d- develop and display some schizophrenic tendencies. I don't have many details yeah. about that. It's just kind of what come up, comes up with LSD. But yeah, I, th- I think that just kind of gets that one other piece of the the bypassing, which is people say psychedelics are anti-addictive. And I can see that certainly at high doses, but I think that people can develop yeah, not physical addictions in the way of other things, but a psychological dependency on microdosing, perhaps, definitely ketamine, certainly recreational ketamine.
0: Yes, recreational ketamine. And uh, LSD, of course, and psilocybin work on the neurotransmitters and they wear them out. So theoretically, you take LSD several days in a row, it's not going to have much effect you know, after the second or third time because you've worn out, you know, your serotonin and you, you've you got to replenish it before you can get an effect again. But, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. I'll tell you a quick story about an adverse effect of MDMA going back, Please. uh, at least 30 years. I took MDMA with a group of psychologists, six of us all took it. And, uh, and five of us had a, had a wonderful, uh, Empathetic, you know, d- d- uh, defenses down, uh, conversation uh, quite remarkable, but all of a sudden we noticed the sixth person wasn't in the room, and uh, and we started looking around, and we found her cowering on the floor in the bathroom, and she was having a uh, a real paranoid event. And uh, of course, you know, we were all trained and we were able to help her out of it. And, and the, uh, the end result was okay. But it was, uh, it was definitely, uh, with a particular kind of person, with her background, it was definitely an adverse effect. There's no question. You know, it mm. was, we, knew, we all knew it. It was not something we had to figure out. So that's mm. just a way of saying, you know, that these things do happen and uh of course you know we're all being careful as we can to vet people right now i think eventually we'll figure out a way to provide many more people with these uh with these substances in safe ways but right now we're just sort of f- still experimenting and feeling our way across yeah yeah absolutely lots of a lot to discover still a, a great deal to discover we're going to take a pause now and I'm going to ask you to give some thought to if we ended this interview right now and then you went off and you had those, one of those moments where you said to yourself, gee, I wish I would have said so-and-so. You know how that is. You've had that happen where you walk away and you say, oh, I wish I would have said. So we're going to take oh, yeah. a pause now and I'll do a little talking about the program. And that's going to give you an opportunity to see if you have any of those, I wish I would have said, and then I'll come back to you and you'll have a chance if you have any to say them. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah, that's a really good question. Okay. Richard. You think about it. it. and appreciate uh, And thank you all for listening to today's program. For those of you who may be new, if you go to our website, uh, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, our programs are archived and they're open source. That means you can listen to them without charge. And you can also watch them without charge. So please do uh, go to the website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, and you might see a little icon there that says subscribe. And if you will, that'll help us in some way, but it doesn't cost you anything to do that. And also know that we have a new program uh, every week, which is broadcast at 9 o'clock uh, on Tuesday mornings, 9 o'clock Pacific st- uh, Standard Time on Tuesday mornings. But again, you can listen to the archives anytime, uh, any place. Uh, now back to Sean. Any last minute tidbits? Yeah. How much time do we have? Well,
1: you take the time you need. We're on a internet radio. <laughs> All right. What came to mind with your question is something to do with the importance of facilitators working with their shadows and their own tendencies or propensities to bypass. And I'm certainly not excluding myself from that category. I think that it's so important in this non-ordinary state work with psychedelics and whatever it might be to hold open space and to be a kind of clear channel of presence for someone and maintaining authenticity and um, being able to, to be there for the breadth of uh, participant or clients, what comes up for them in a non-ordin- non-ordinary state, which can be so much, as we know. And if a facilitator has certain trigger points, I mean, we all have trigger points, but some that they don't want to look at and some that they're not aware of it's almost inevitable in psychedelic work that something will hit that and then perhaps in the worst moment they'll be in a reactive place and maybe not know why and it's just such a vulnerable state to be in on like on psilocybin or mdma or ketamine and so i think it's just so important for facilitators to be able to recognize those when they're being kind of triggered and really question like well what's what's in this for me why is this such a trigger and maybe it has to do with their individual past maybe it has to do with culture maybe it has to do with values so many things but it's i think an, an opportunity to become more aware and maybe integrate parts of ourselves that we're still afraid to look at a bit and it just all contributes to being a safer presence for the clients and cir- circumventing the potential to cause harm. Well, thank you. That's a nice You're that's welcome. a nice tidbit.
0: And uh, and thank you for being with us today on mind body health and politics Sean and good luck in your Absolutely. work. Yeah, thanks for having me, Richard. It's been really nice talking to you. Excellent. And thank you all again, gentle listeners, for being with us today. Uh, Tune in again, as I said, 9 o'clock Tuesday mornings or anytime on our archives. Until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.